And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or investinghope.com or anywhere podcasts are found. You can find us Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam. Uh, we would love for you to listen. And so uh, grateful this week is, is a good week so far. We are uh, Spring is officially here in terms of the calendar year. It, spring is officially here. The weather has been nice. Uh, it's been, at least here in East Tennessee, here in Knoxville, it's been sunny. And, man, I'm so ready for that to become the norm. We're still going to have a few cold nights. Uh, we're not completely out of the woods yet. I know a lot of people are dealing with allergies right now uh, with the pollen and everything. But, man, warm, warmer weather is here. Short sleeves are here, and we're excited about that. Today we got a few things to talk about. We're going to start with uh, – uh, an essay over at First Things, and firstthings.com is a great uh, resource for you. But it, but it's a pretty long essay, but but I'm going to go through it because I think it's important that we look at this. As we continue to have conversations on abortion and pro-life and pro-choice and the constitutionality of abortion and Roe v. Wade and all those things, there are some folks that see that we've been arguing the case to end Roe v. Wade in the wrong way. And so uh, the, the author over at First Things does a great job of, of pointing that out. His name is John Finnis, I believe is how you say his last name. And it's a, it's a, good, uh, a good essay kind of walking through, hey, maybe the law in the books is unconstitutional, and here's why. So we're going to look at that. We're also going to look at um, Joe Biden, his, his administration, and kind of refunding Planned Parenthood, not that Planned Parenthood was ever defunded through uh Washington, but, but some funds were, uh, shifted. So, so Title X funding was moved to a, a different place and, and taken away from Planned Parenthood. It looks like Biden's going to, uh, reinstitute that. And then we got a couple more things that we're going to look at in terms of, uh, court cases and, uh, and the like. And we're going to look at that, uh, the rest of the time with you. And so right now, let's start with this, this essay over at First Things. It's, it's entitled, Abortion is unconstitutional. Uh, and it says this, Begin with Blackstone's commentaries, wrote presidential candidate Abraham Lincoln in 1860, when asked how to get through knowledge of law. Read them carefully through, say twice, end quote. That's 4,000 pages just to begin with. Lawyers involved in drafting and debating the 14th Amendment in 1866 were all acquainted with the commentaries on the laws of England, published in 1765 in time to be appealed to among the framers at Philadelphia in 1787 and still foundational in the original or in American editions in early and mid-19th century legal education. The 14th Amendment was drafted to sustain the Civil Rights Act of 1866, whose sponsor, James F. Wilson, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, said while introducing it, he said this, quote, what are these rights? Certainly, they must be as comprehensive as those which belong to Englishmen. Blackstone classifies them under three articles as follows. One, the right of personal security. Two, the right of personal liberty. Three, the right of personal property. The great fundamental rights are the inalienable possession of both Englishmen and Americans. Wilson was quoting from the commentary's first chapter of the absolute rights of individuals. And Wilson, too, calls these rights absolute, meaning not exceptionalist, but rather natural or human. Blackstone delineates these rights. The rights of the people of England, Blackstone says, may be reduced to three principal or primary articles. 
the right of personal security, the right of personal liberty, and the right of private property, because the preservation of these inviolate may justly be said to include the preservation of of our civil immunities in their largest and most extensive sense. The passage continues without a break. The right of personal security consists in a person's legal and uninterrupted enjoyment of his life, his limbs, his body, his health, and his reputation. Life is the immediate gift of God, a right inherent by nature in every individual. And it begins in contemplation of law as soon as an infant is able to stir in the mother's womb. For if a woman is quick with child and by a potion, or otherwise killeth it in her womb, or if anyone beat her, or anyone beat her whereby the child dieth in her body, and she is delivered of a death of a dead child, this, though not murder, was by the ancient law homicide or manslaughter. But at present it is not looked upon in quite so atrocious a light, though it remains a very heinous misdemeanor. An infant in the mother's womb is supposed in law to be born for many purposes. It is capable of having a legacy or a surrender of a copyhold estate made to it. It may have a guardian assigned to it, and it is enabled to have an estate limited to its use and to take afterwards by such limitation as if it were then actually born. That's all Blackstone there. The author of this article goes further. Plainly, there is an individual, a human being, as soon as there is a living individual in the mother's womb. For some purposes, guardianship, for example, the law treats such an individual, even at that beginning stage, as equal to a born child. For other purposes, notably direct protection of the right to personal security by the criminal law, the life of the unborn beings, quote, in contemplation of law, end quote, only when the infant is able to stir in the mother's womb. But an English statute of 1803, only a generation after Blackstone, made it a felony to attempt abortion even before the child was provably quick. Thus, by the dawn of the 19th century, English criminal law established the great fundamental right, uniquely important for an unborn child, beginning with the child when the child did at conception. Notice Blackstone's and Wilson's logic. Persons, individuals, people have absolute or natural rights in England and America alike. The law gives these effects, establishes them as legal rights of the person. Where the law's establishment of personal personal rights is for any reason defective, individuals have a claim in justice to that law's replacement or supplementation. Slaves and non-citizen freedmen, like Dred Scott, for example, had in reality absolute rights to security, liberty, and property, and were owed state law that neither wholly nor partly denied these rights, hence the need for, for the Civil Rights Act and a 14th Amendment to grant power to enact it and to make the absolute or natural right a positive law constitutional right. The commentary's first book is of the rights of a person, and its first chapter of the absolute rights of, an, of individuals begins by explaining what persons are. Persons are divided by the law into either natural persons or artificial Natural persons are are such as the God of nature formed us. Artificial are such as created and devised by human laws, which are called corporations or bodies politic. The rights of a person, considered in their natural capacities, are also of two sorts, absolute and relative. By the absolute right of individuals, we mean those which are so in the primary and strictest sense, such as would belong to their persons merely in a state of nature, in which every man is entitled to enjoy, whether out of society or in it. 
the extent to which these entitlements will in fact be established, acknowledged, and given effect in law has fluctuated, as Blackstone observes before he settles down to detailing how far the law of England in his day established them. Book one's exposition of the rights of persons has 18 chapters, the last being of corporations. Shortly after the 14th Amendment had been sent to the states for approval, its main draftsman, John A. Bingham, said more than once that this work, that his work for it. He said this, represented my conviction of the fundamental eternal rights of humanity, rights that had been denied to the uh, black man. It surged from my understanding of the divine plan for people. These are the precious rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I had thought of substituting property for pursuit of happiness. By property, I meant that belonging to human beings. By persons, I did not mean corporations. But as Bingham would not have denied, the constitutional question is not what the drafters of the amendment meant, what they had in mind to achieve their intended purposes or aims, nor even what they had happened to think about aloud. The question is what their wording meant to those state legislators who ratified it, as they considered it in the context of the document and law they were amending and of the understanding of language and law prevalent among them. Of the 14th Amendment's five sections, it is section one that has mattered most. Section one consists of four propositions. All persons born or naturalized in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the U.S. and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The third sentence is usually called the due process clause. In it, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey found a prohibition invalidating any state law substantially restricting a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to bear or abort her unborn child. Roe v. Wade also said if the unborn were persons, their, quote, right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the amendment. And the case against Texas's law forbidding abortion except to save the mother's life would collapse. Perhaps the court thought that the guarantee was implied by the due process clause, or perhaps it was thinking of section one's fourth sentence, the equal protection clause. Either would suffice. Each protects any person. Given what Blackstone's commentaries show about the prevalent legal understanding of 1866 of the word persons, it was not too surprising that the Supreme Court, when in 1886 the issue was first raised, ruled it too obvious even to need an argument or explanation that any person in the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause includes corporations. Indeed, Bingham's, quote, I did not mean corporations, may well have been the, the tactic omission that Though protecting corporations was no part of his purpose, the public language he chose did mean that corporations have whatever 14th Amendment rights they logically can have. And a tactic admission that had he wanted them not to be included, he could and should have written natural persons. Logically, corporations could not become, could not come within the amendments for a sentence for they are never born or naturalized, but they can come within its third and fourth for lawyers brought it up on Blackstone and the whole tradition he articulated included corporations under persons when the term is unqualified as any person. So this essay goes further and further and further and I would, I would strongly encourage you to read it. But the, the point that he is making is we've said for a very long time that, that person does mean someone growing in a womb, that that's when we become a person. So personhood is the argument we should be seeking. Personhood 
is the argument we should be seeking from a legal standpoint and also from a conversational standpoint. Do we believe that the baby growing inside the womb is a person? Do we believe that baby has personhood? Because in, in, in many legal matters, the law recognizes the personhood of that child. What do I mean by that? Let's say my wife is pregnant. And, and I say, I want to leave something to the child that is growing inside of her. Legally, I can do that. Even if I'm gone before the baby comes out of the womb, I can legally say that is that that child is going to inherit X, Y, or Z because it's my child. So legally, we can do that. Legally, if if someone is pregnant, they can say if something were to happen to me, my sister becomes the 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 parent to this child. Legally. They can do that. Now, now the court doesn't look and say, well, I'm sorry, we can't make that uh, decision because the baby hasn't been born yet and it's technically not a person or a life or, human, or a human, so we can't leave it to anyone. Now, see, the courts wouldn't do that. The courts would recognize in a document, okay, if something were to happen to this mom, so-and-so would, would become guardian of that child. If I was on my deathbed, I could say, hey, I won't the child growing inside of my wife's womb to receive X, Y, or Z, even though that child hasn't been born yet. You see, I could do that, and it would be recognized by the law. So the law, in essence, would be recognizing the personhood of the baby in the womb. Like, are we understanding this? But but for so long, we haven't had the personhood conversation. We haven't had the personhood discussion in terms of legal. What does that mean? What does that mean in the courts? Has Have the courts looked at the personhood argument? And there's a number of folks that want to push that. And then you're being told by other lobbyists and attorneys that, well, that's that will never work. And they say it would never work because it's never been done. Yet the, the path that they've been going down for year after year after year after year isn't working. Yet they say that's the only path to move forward. So will the personhood argument work? I don't know. But we haven't tried it. Why not try it? Because guess what? All the other paths we tried haven't worked to overturn Roe v. Wade. The heartbeat bills, they get caught up in the courts and they get struck down every single time. So they haven't worked. The legal argument hasn't worked. So this is a path, a direction that needs to be looked at. And thankfully... Some very smart people, a lot smarter than myself, are looking into it and seeing if we can make the legal argument for personhood for those growing in the womb. And that would change everything. We'll talk more when we come back. As we continue the conversation today, I know that first segment was a little bit deeper and into the weeds than, than we tend to go. But I do think it's an important conversation. So go over to firstthings.com, read that piece. Uh, I only, I only glossed over, uh, you know, I kind of hit the surface, but there's a lot of great arguments and, and, and a lot of, uh, great commentary when it comes to personhood, when it comes to the rights, absolute rights, human rights. What does that mean? Who does that include? And even if you look back into 1800s, I mean, we had the framers, we had folks going, yeah, I mean, of course it includes, uh, a baby growing in the womb. They even knew that then, and they couldn't even see the baby growing in the womb. They didn't even have ultrasound technology. 
But they recognized that, hey, all of us were born. All of us were, uh, you know, grew in a womb. All of us had that same opportunity at life. And in America, in that time, as, as the framers were, were kind of walking everything out, America, the big thing was we want our rights. We want our freedom. We want our uh, autonomy. And so in, in wanting and desiring that, that must start in the womb. I mean, there's, there's a great line in a, in a Gaither, if you're familiar with the Gaithers, there's a great long line in one of their songs called Let Freedom Ring. And, and the line is, even a child fights for freedom at birth. Now, now, some of you may be going, what do you, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, if you've ever been in a, in a room, or maybe you've had a baby, or if you've been in the, uh, the room as a baby was being birthed, it appears as if the child's doing everything it can. There's no holding back, right? The mom isn't going to be like, no, we're going to hold this a couple more days. No, the, the child is fighting for freedom. The child is coming. There's no stopping that. And, and what you have there is even in that beginning moment, you have the child fighting, gasping for air, looking for its freedom. And, and of course, as Americans, we look back at our Constitution, we look back at the way we were uh, created. Everything was about those freedoms, the liberties to grow and do and, and, and have what we want. Not that it would be handed to us, that we would fight for it. That we would stand strong. And that in doing so, we would stand for those that couldn't stand for themselves. And so I'm interested to see what the personhood argument where it goes from here. Let, let's change gears for a second to look at the Biden administration. I told y'all, look, look this is going to be the, you know, one of the most pro-abortion administrations we've ever seen. And, uh, and that, that's what it's kind of turning into. And so uh, the Biden administration will undo the protect life rule, which prevents abortion providers from obtaining federal money, money through the Title, uh, X, Title 10 family planning program. When Senate Democrats voted last week to confirm Xavier Becerra as head of the Department of Health and Human Services, they were putting their weight behind the Biden administration's plan to undo all of the pro-life policies implemented under President Donald Trump. Now, this is no surprise. This shouldn't surprise any of you. This is what happens when elections uh, occur and when parties change power. This is what we see. So this doesn't surprise me. It's disappointing, but it certainly doesn't surprise me. The first policy to go, it appears, will be the Protect Life Rule, a regulation enacted by Trump's uh, HHS department in 2019 to freeze a portion of federal funding that had previously flowed freely to abortion providers across the country. Shortly after Becerra's confirmation, the Biden administration announced that it would begin to work to reverse this rule, a move that the president had foreshadowed in January when he rescinded the Mexico City policy, which prevented U.S. foreign aid funding from assisting non-governmental organizations that provide or promote abortion overseas. In that January order, Biden instructed his HHS department to begin reviewing the Protect Life rule, which had resulted in abortion organizations, including Planned Parenthood, losing their access to federal funds through family planning programming. In Becerra, the president has perhaps found the perfect official for the task. As many of us have noted in these pages, the, the former California attorney general is best known for his longtime radical support of legal unlimited abortion. 
The Protect Life rule was one of the key anti-abortion accomplishments of the Trump administration as it enabled the executive branch to assist the pro-life movement's longtime goal of removing federal funding from abortion providers. Although for several decades, the Hyde Amendment has been added to federal spending bills to prevent taxpayer money from directly reimbursing providers for the cost of abortion procedures, there is no prohibition on abortion groups receiving federal money, supposedly for other purposes. Therefore, because money is fungible, any money that flows to Planned Parenthood or to any other abortion provider is necessarily underwriting and supporting the group's abortion business. In light of Congressional Republicans' failure to follow through on their promise to defund Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider, the Trump administration crafted the Protect Life rule, using the administrative power of HHS to dry up one funding stream that had previously assisted the abortion group. The rule required that all family planning providers financially separate their provision of abortion from their other work in order to remain eligible for the family planning funds. Planned Parenthood, which performs upwards of 350,000 abortions each year, declined to do so and as a result no longer received about $60 million annually from the federal government, about 20% of the group's overall federal funding, most of which comes in the form of Medicaid reimbursements. Undoing this policy has unsurprisingly been at the top of the list for Biden administration, which has publicly admitted to relying on Planned Parenthood to help staff its ranks. As a result, HHS formally announced late last week that it will rewrite the the funding rules, effectively eliminating the provision that had required abortion providers to distinguish their abortion business from everything else they provide. Now, now think about that for a second. If if you're not using the funds on abortion, why would you have a problem separating these funds from your abortion business? It, it seems pretty simple. I mean, if you if you were giving out money to citizens, let, let's say let's take the stimulus check for for an instance. Okay, so so let's say they were giving you a stimulus check of fourteen hundred dollars, and they said, now now you can receive this stimulus check, but it has to be separate from your mortgage payment. So you can't use it on your mortgage payment. So we have to see in your in your budgeting that it is separate from your mortgage payment. If you can't do that, then you don't get the money. Now, what would you do? You would, you would say, okay, well, I will, I will clearly show you what I used that $1,400 on and I won't use it on my mortgage payment. Pretty simple. And if you said, no, I'm not going to do that, then what you're telling me is, well, you had every intention of using that payment on your mortgage. And in the same way, when, when the abortion industry says, yeah, we're not using federal funds on abortion, but then when they're told, hey, you gotta, you gotta show that, that these funds aren't going to abortion. You gotta detach the, these dollars from other services. And the abortion industry says, eh, I'm not gonna do that. That tells me all I need to know. They're not being transparent with us, but, but they're, they're not accepting the money told me all I needed to know. Since its enactment in 2019, the Protect Life rule has been the subject of legal battles, including one lawsuit led by Becerra himself, challenging the Trump administration over the policy. Last month, the Supreme Court announced that it would hear a case considering the legality of the rule, which had been upheld by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in February and blocked by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals last September. Regardless of Biden's intent to undo the policy entirely, a court ruling in favor of the rule's legality would be useful for future pro-life administrations that want to prevent taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion through federal dollars. 
In addition to undoing the Protect Life rule, Biden has instructed his officials at HHS to review and rescind any existing policies that, quote, impose undue restrictions on the use of federal funds or women's access to complete medical information, end quote. The president's directive, of course, should be read as progressive code for any policy that prevents federal funding from subsidizing abortion providers. Of course, that's what their goal is. It's like, well, we're not going to use the money for for abortion. But but again, we know that budgets are fungible. If I handed you ten thousand dollars today and said, don't use it on your mortgage, you would go, well, that's fine. I'm going to use it on all my other bills, which in essence is going to supplement my income, which in essence is then going to allow me to pay my mortgage more. So I didn't use those dollars on what you told me not to use it on, but those dollars allowed me to free up other funds to use it on the thing you told me not to use it on. Does that make sense? That's how budgets work. And then they use the code language of women's health and access to care. And all they mean there is abortion. We want more abortion. That is what they are calling for. We'll talk more when we come back. So if you can't tell, I get I get quite upset when we talk about federal funds and, and when they say that, well, you know, no, no federal funds are going directly toward abortion. That is a uh, that is political talk. You know, when, when because we know how budgets operate and, and it, it plays to it, it acts as if the American people are a bunch of ignorant, uh, uneducated. You know, we don't know anything. Oh, OK. OK. My tax dollars aren't paying for abortion. And so if anyone ever tells you that, if you're ever having a conversation and someone says, look, the Hyde Amendment doesn't allow for tax dollars to pay for abortion. Look at them and say, well, what do you know about budgets? How does your budget work? If, if, if somebody handed you money and said, you can use this money, but you can't use it on X, Y, and Z. Let, let's talk through that. Okay. Technically, the money you gave me is not being used on X, Y, and Z. I can prove that. I can show you the receipts. That money was never used to purchase X, Y, and Z, which you told me not to purchase. But that money freed up the rest of my budget to go and purchase X, Y, and Z. If you're operating on a budget of $100,000 a year, you just, that's what you operate on, whether it be personally in your business, whatever. Just for easy numbers sake, let's say you're operating on a budget of $100,000 a year. And then the government comes in and says, here's an extra $20,000. But you cannot use that $20,000 on abortion. Put it in the same account. You know, put it put it in the bank account that you have your other money in, but you can't use that twenty thousand dollars on abortion. Okay, I won't use that twenty thousand dollars on abortion, but here's what I'll do: I'll use that twenty thousand dollars on marketing, and I'll use that twenty thousand dollars on supplies, and I'll use that twenty thousand dollars to to pay a part of a salary of an employee. I'll use that twenty thousand dollars to spruce up the place. I'll use that twenty thousand dollars to pay. The, the electric bill to pay the water bill to pay insurance. I'll use that $20,000 for a lot of different things that, that are not abortion. But what does that do? Now you're operating 
on a budget of $120,000 a year. So because you've taken some of those funds and applied it to an electric bill and applied it to a water bill and applied it to insurance and applied it to marketing, it has freed up other dollars that were already in your budget, already accounted for. Now you're going, well, well, I don't have to use that money for marketing anymore. I can use it for abortion. I don't have to use that money for insurance anymore. I can use that money for abortion. I don't have to use that money for my electric bill anymore. I can use it for abortion. Are you understanding how this budget works? So when they, when they look you in the eye and say, federal dollars don't pay for abortion, they're lying. Or at the very least, they are being manipulated. They're manipulating you because they're saying something that we know because we know how money works. We know what that money is going to allow them to do. It's called supplemental income. It's the same reason why, why a lot of families in 2021 have other business, other, other, other revenue generators within their, within their family. Hey, if, if we can, if we can somehow make an extra 5,000 here this year, we can use that 5,000 to pay our mortgage down. If we can somehow make an extra 10,000 by doing this on the side, we can use that money to free up other money to do other things. All this is is supplemental income for the abortion industry. It really is that simple. So yeah, technically, it may not be going to abortion services. But the reality is it is it is going into their budget and freeing up other monies to do what they want to with. That's just the truth. And they need to be honest about it. They must be honest about it. And so when you have those conversations, when you talk to politicians, all, wh- whoever you were talking to, let's be honest about what budgets look like and how they operate. Now let's look at what's happening in the Seventh Circuit, uh, let's see, Seventh Circuit Court, uh, over in Indiana. They, they just blocked, uh, uh, some legislation that, that was put forward. So late last week, a three-judge panel, of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals blocked an Indiana law that required minors to notify their parents before obtaining an abortion. The policy was established in 2017 as an amendment to the state's judicial bypass process, which enables minors to seek an abortion even without parental consent if a judge determines that abortion is in her best interest. The amendment altered that process so that if a judge did permit a minor to proceed with an abortion without parental consent, her parents would at least be notified of the decision. In its ruling last week, the Seventh Circuit panel determined that the, this uh, parental notification requirement was unconstitutional, weighing the Supreme Court's previous jurisprudence and deciding that the requirement is, quote, substantial obstacle to abortion access. This decision marks the second time that a Seventh Circuit panel has blocked Indiana's parental notification policy. The panel in this case reconsidered its previous decision after the case was remanded by the Supreme Court in light of last summer's ruling in June Medical versus Russo. Parental consent and parental notification laws have become an important focal point in abortion debates at the state level in recent years. Even though there has generally been consensus that, that such policies are a prudent restriction on abortion, earlier this year, Massachusetts enacted a broad expansion of legal abortion in the state, including an alteration that would allow 16- and 17-year-old girls to obtain abortions without notifying their parents. Meanwhile, in Illinois, members of the General Assembly are working to repeal the state's 
parental notification requirement, even though a recent poll commissioned by Illinois Right to Life found that nearly three-quarters of state residents want to keep the law as it is. As Margot Cleveland pointed out uh, last week, the split between the judges on the Seventh Circuit panel in last week's Indiana ruling makes it more likely that the issue will head back to the Supreme Court, especially because the dissenting judge's opinion revealed that lower court judges disagree on how the rationale of June Medical should influence rulings on other abortion regulations. Now, let's think about this for a second. There was a time in my life where I went to, when, when you used to go to stores to actually buy CDs, right? So you used to, you know, my son even asked me last night what a VHS was. So I had to explain to him a VHS tape, a VCR and all that. Well, we used to have cassettes. The, the Wood Family Church van even, even has a cassette player in it. But there was a time where we bought CDs. The first CD I ever bought uh, had a parental advisory on it. It was Usher. You know who Usher is? Uh, and, and the album had parental advisory on it. And I walked up. I was, I was under 18. I walked up to the desk and they said, let me see your ID. And I was like, I don't have an ID. I'm 14 years old. And they said, well, we can't sell you this album because it's got parental advisory on it. What, what these states are wanting to do is they're wanting to make the law to get an abortion easier than, than even buying a CD. Easier than getting a tattoo. There was a time in my life where I wanted my ears pierced. Yeah, crazy, I know. Insane. But I had to get a parent's signature to get my left ear pierced. Why? Because I was underage, and they think underage people don't need to be making decisions like that. Well, guess what? If you saw me today, I've had my ears pierced twice. When I was 15, I got the left one done. Took it out four weeks later. When I was 17, I got both of them done. Took it out four weeks later. If you looked at my ears today, you couldn't tell I got an ear pierced because I didn't have men long enough. Guess what? It wasn't a permanent decision. It wasn't a life-altering decision. So, so we have laws on the books that say that a kid has to have parental consent in order to get his ears pierced, even though it's not a life-altering decision, even though it's not a permanent decision. They wouldn't let me do it. If you are under the age of 21 and you want to go buy a, a alcohol, you can't do that. If you are under the age of 16 and without hardship and all these other things, you cannot get a driver's license. Even your 16-year-old driver's license, not when I was 16, but nowadays they're like graduated license and they have all these rules. Why? Because you're young and you shouldn't be making decisions without parents involved, without guardians involved. If you want to go get a, a surgery done, a parent is going to have to sign, a guardian is going to have to sign some kind of form before you can get that done. My kids are homeschooled. Just last week, they had to do some testing, and they had to go to our umbrella where we're doing our umbrella through, and I had to sign forms for them because they're kids. They're minors. They didn't sign the form. I signed the form. If they wanted to go on a field trip, guess what? I had to sign a form and allow it to happen. Should I continue? If they want to go see a rated R movie, they have to have a parent with them. But if they want to go get an abortion, this panel of judges say, nah, just get it done. Your parents don't need to know. It'll be okay. A life-altering, forever decision. And they're saying the parents don't need to be involved. Think about that.
That's where we are. Their love for abortion. They, they've told themselves the lie that this is a absolute right. So much so that, that the laws on the books concerning ear piercings are more restrictive than one that ends the heartbeat of a human being. If a minor wants to go get a tattoo, guess what? Mom, dad, guardian's going to have to sign off on that. But if that same minor wants to go get an abortion, we don't have to tell anybody. Just get it done. You'll be better for it. You know what's best. Are you kidding me? I mean, that that's the problem with this conversation. I don't care where you fall on the pro-life, pro-choice, pro-abortion spectrum. I I don't. That shouldn't matter none to should minors be able to just go get an abortion for any reason they want. You notice that the law doesn't say if you're a minor and you've been raped or a minor due to incest, anything like that. No, it just says if you're a minor and you want an abortion, you should be able to do it without telling your parents or your guardians. That's crazy. And the vast majority of the populace would, would agree with that. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we finish up today, you know, the the topics today have been a little bit more in the weeds and, and uh, detailed and intricate. But, but I wanted to talk about them because these are the conversations that need to be had. These are the, the things that are happening in legislators, legislatures across the country. These are the things that are happening in courtrooms across the country. These are decisions that are being made in Washington. And so you don't need to eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff. But you do need to know what's going on. You do need to know that a, the, a court panel said, yeah, minors should be able to get abortions. They just They should. And restricting that is is an overreach, even though the Supreme Court just last year said it wasn't. I mean, it, it, it very few things upset me more than than our hypocritical laws when it comes to minors. If my child came home and had their ear pierced. And I wasn't a part of that decision. I might be upset for, for half an hour, but it's not gonna, I'm not gonna lose it because that happened. If my child came home with a tattoo and they were underage, yeah, I'd be upset, but I'm not gonna lose my mind. But if I found out my child got an abortion and I was never involved in the discussion, and no one was ever talked to, and that their mom was never involved in the discussion, and that that some judge or some guidance counselor or some uh, abortion worker took it upon themselves to advise my little girl or my little boy on on this decision. Yeah, I'm gonna lose my mind. I'm gonna be angry. It's going to be more than just a half hour or an hour or a day or a month. Why? Because that's a, that's a life altering forever decision. Abortion 
ends the life of a human that has never been created before and will never be created again. That's a life-altering, forever decision. And I know some will say, well, what, if, you know, their parents don't care. What about their parents that, that aren't involved in their life? Yeah, that's terrible. But we can't go around flippantly saying that minors should just be able to do these things without involving parents. We won't even take them on a field trip without a signature of a guardian. Even if that guardian beats them. Guess what? The school's still going to require a signature from that guardian. Oh, little Johnny can't go on the field trip because mom or dad or guardian never signed off on it. So they can't go. But little Susie, she can go get an abortion without telling mom, dad, or guardian because, you know, abortion is a right. We got to get that done. The last thing we want is more little Johnnies or Susies running around, right? You see, that's their argument. And when we say things as if it's just, well, you know, we, we can't restrict it in any way. We don't do that for anything. Alcohol is, is prevalent everywhere. But, but a, a bartender can say, look, I'm cutting you off tonight. You've had too much. We have laws in the books that says you can't drive after having so much to drink. Why do we do that? Because we restrict it. Because what could happen after that is a life-altering forever decision. That could affect you, could affect others. So we're going to have laws in the books that restrict it. We don't mind you drinking. But you need to be 21. We don't mind you drinking, but if you overdo it, you don't need to drive. We don't mind you drinking, but but we really don't need you operating heavy equipment while drinking. You see, those are common sense laws on the books that that don't restrict drinking outright. That just says, look, we believe there should be some restrictions. And no one thinks that's crazy. But when it comes to abortion, we're like, hey, free for all. No restrictions. Do what you want to do. It's your body. That's how crazy we've become. And that's why I get frustrated. Because if we would sit down and just have these conversations logically, which no one seems to want to do about anything anymore, if we would just sit down and have these conversations logically, we might get to a place where life would be protected in its most vulnerable state, which is in the womb. And wouldn't that be a glory, glorious day? We'll talk to you next week.